Hello, and welcome to Don't Ignore the Elephant, the podcast where we talk about the stuff that no one else will, the elephant in the room. I'm Liz O'Riordan. I'm a breast cancer surgeon with breast cancer, and during my career, I've had a lot of elephants to deal with. I've learned that talking about them, getting them out in the open, can help you know that you're not alone. Whether it's cancer or other illnesses, mental health issues, sexual problems, bullying, harassment, or the death of a loved one, there are loads of things that can be hard to discuss. I know how powerful it can be to hear someone else talk honestly about their own problems. Some of my guests have lived these experiences, whilst others have dedicated their lives to helping those who have. I'm going to be chatting to them about it and asking the questions everyone else is too afraid to ask. In this episode, we'll be talking about testicular cancer, comedy, and cardiac arrest. I know firsthand what it's like to be a doctor who becomes a patient, and so does this week's guest, the American ophthalmologist Dr. Will Flannery. Now, I'd been practicing surgery for 20 years when I got breast cancer, but Will was just in his fourth year of medical school in the States when he woke up one day to find a massive lump on one of his testicles. He went from being an invincible 25-year-old husband and father to a cancer patient overnight. How the hell do you cope at such a young age? Will turned to comedy. My UK listeners may not have heard of him, but through his alter ego, Dr. Glaukenflecken, he's become a social media sensation. His viral videos where he makes fun of other medical specialities have gained him over 400,000 Twitter followers. Now, if you thought Will getting cancer in his other testicle was enough bad luck for one man, you'd be wrong. Because last year, in the middle of the night, his wife heard him making strange sounds and realised he'd gone into cardiac arrest. She quickly started CPR and 10 minutes later, the paramedics arrived and eventually brought him back to life. There are so many things I want to ask you and I'm thrilled you're able to join me today. Welcome, Will, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I guess we may as well kick off with testicles. Um, (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people don't believe that a lump can appear overnight. Is that what really happened to you? Yeah, it, it really did. It's, you know, and I, I fortunately caught it early. And yeah, I was a, a third year uh, medical student at the time. And so, you know, I, I didn't know a lot of medicine, uh, but mm-hmm. I knew enough to know that testicles don't divide uh, typically. And so <laughs> something was wrong and I went in and got it checked out. But yeah, it was literally just overnight. It took actually a couple of days to convince myself that what I was feeling was not right. Yeah. And so it wasn't that same day. I was like, oh, this is something's wrong. It's like I had to to mentally like prepare myself for the idea that this is wrong. And what treatment did you end up having for that? I was able to uh, just have an orchiectomy and and that was it. That was fine. Quite life changing, I assume, as a husband and a father thinking. It was. I mean, we had a, our first daughter at that point. Uh, she was maybe about a year old. And so it was um, mm-hmm. It was hard uh, just going from a completely healthy, never had any health problems in my life, uh, 20, however old I was, 25-year-old, uh, I don't even remember. I think it was 25. And then all of a sudden, you have cancer. And it's just that it's so hard to wrap your head around that. Especially with a little bit of knowledge. It, yeah. When I got breast cancer, I never checked my breasts because I never thought it would happen to me. Did you check yourself regularly? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say regularly. I didn't, you know, set an alarm on my on my phone, you know, to, yeah. to you know, once a week I'd check it. But uh, 
you just you feel around down there enough times that you kind of know what's normal and what's not normal and 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 so it was it was fairly obvious you know it's kind of un- unmistakable it's just the feeling of it it didn't feel right uh and then you know when you examine yourself it's like oh that's definitely not not normal did you have to take a lot of time off medical school i didn't have to take a lot of time i was very very fortunate in that way that it was at a a there's, there's no convenient time to get cancer, but nope. uh, uh, it was as convenient a time as, as I could have picked, I suppose. Yeah. And I'm assuming, did that put you off urology as a career? Because I nearly became a urologist. I used to oh, practice, did you? Um, yeah, I used to practice under my maiden name of Ball. And when I was on the unit, my <laughs> boss called me Tess, as in Tess Tickle, and it stuck for three years. Well, if I wasn't going to become a urologist, then ophthalmology is the next most obvious choice because it's all balls. It's just different types of balls <laughs> uh, that do dramatically different things. But did you know you were always going to be a surgeon? No, I, I didn't. In fact, I, I decided on ophthalmology uh, fairly late. It actually, mm-hmm. it was at, wasn't for a couple months after my diagnosis that I was able to finally do an ophthalmology rotation and realize that this is what I, I wanted. In fact, I, I did a vascular surgery rotation right before my ophthalmology rotation. So I went from I, standing in the OR for... I hated vascular. <laughs> yeah, it's it was rough. It was rough. It was just going from you know, eight-hour cases to all of a sudden I get to sit down and watch a cataract surgery that takes I about 10 minutes. Uh, this is fantastic. <laughs> Why, what am I doing? Why, this is, I have to do this. No smelly body fluids. <laughs> Not, uh, <laughs> fortunately, no. And everybody kept their pants on at all times. Yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> you know, definitely the specialty for me. It definitely has its attraction, doesn't it? <laughs> and I, must admit, I was shocked to read that you got cancer on the other side because I've never seen a patient who had that. Just how common yeah. is it or how unlucky are you? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm not, not very lucky. It's a, a, a 2% of testicular cancer survivors have it in the other testicle. Wow. So you have to get it the first time. And then of those people, 2% will get it on the other side, somewhere between one and 2%. So it's not, not very common. And, uh, no, it's- that was, uh, you know, it just, that's what happens sometimes, you know? And how hard was that? Yeah. The second time was much harder. I was about to say it's, um, yeah, the first time. Okay. Well, I, I get the testicle removed and, yeah. and, I'm fine. You know, I, I, I don't have to go on hormone replacement. I you know, can still have kids, all this stuff. Second time around, when I had that diagnosis, there were a lot more questions we had to answer, uh, my wife and I. How old were you? Uh, I was, it was four years after my first one. So I was about t- uh, 29, yeah, 29, 30. And we had our second kid at that point. And honestly, I, that's one thing that I I give my wife so much credit for a lot of things. Uh, But one of them was, uh, was pushing us to start having kids uh, sooner than later, because that did make some of those decisions we had to make a lot easier. Uh, The fact that we had two healthy, wonderful children. Had you wanted a large family? No, really. I mean, I have, I have two siblings. And so, you know, I knew it was going to be between two and three. And and we talked about it, what to do. And in fact, I did bank sperm uh, before I had my second orchiectomy. Mm-hmm. So we we did help hold on to that for a little bit. Uh, but eventually, we just decided, hey, our family's complete. Yeah, we're good. Um, and so let's stop paying, you know, 
however much like a thousand bucks a year to to keep the it's crazy isn't it keep my my sperm frozen somewhere i was made infertile with chemo and i thought about having my eggs preserved but it would mean potentially stimulating the cancer but it's mm. when it's not your decision to not have children it's it's almost really hard to take yeah yeah it's it, that was a hurdle to get over to, to thinking about that you know i i had the option of having a testicle preserving surgery oh okay to to just have the they don't do very often i guess it's only in situations like this where you know you're you're faced with you know infertility but it turns out I decided not to do that. Um, and I'm glad I, I, I yeah. chose that because when the pathology came back the second time around, it actually did show invasion into the lymphatic vessels. And so I would have had to have the rest of it removed anyway. Another so, surgery. yeah, so it's, um, yeah, it all worked out like it's supposed to. Now, this is a slightly cheeky question, but I remember when I did urology, and this had never crossed my mind, I had a man in his 60s who'd had testicular cancer, and he said, what are my grandkids going to say when they see me walking around stark bollock naked and there's only one ball in the sack? And I had no idea that testicular implants were an option. Now, can yeah. I ask, is that something you considered or did? Because I never did. That stuff, I never, never did. No, it's such a, a personal decision, right? It's, mm. And so I, I totally understand the, the, the thought process behind wanting a prosthetic. Um, but I, I never I never considered it. I wouldn't say I considered it at all. <laughs> I was just like, you know, this is just what it's going to be like. And that's fine. And I think it's a bit like some women who have mastectomies, isn't it? They're happy going mm -hmm. flat and unbothered. But what about the hormone replacement therapy? Because I have yeah. no idea what it's like to be on that. I know for women, it's just horrific when you don't have it. What's it like for a man? Yeah. Yeah. So when you don't have it, you get all the symptoms of, you know, lack of testosterone, which, you know, you'll get hot flashes. Uh, you know, weight gain, you know, your mood Welcome changes. Welcome to my world. It's, it's, <laughs> so it's, it's not, it's not fun. And I, I, I'll be honest, I had fantastic doctors. And so I, I didn't have to go through a long period of time where I had those symptoms because right yeah. whenever I got the second orchiectomy, it, they got me right on the hormone replacement. And so, and th that it's, it's just a weekly injection and it's uh, okay. very fortunate that it, it allows me to feel relatively normal and I actually joke that, you know, by, by the time I'm, I'm 60, I'll, I'll have more testosterone than most of my peers <laughs> um, because I get to be on the replacement for the rest of my life. Oh, wow. And so it's okay. It's, it's kind of a hassle because, you know, some of the wonderful things we deal with in, in the United States uh, with regard to our health care industry and insurance makes it a little bit challenging at times to have to, or really not challenging, but mm -hmm. frustrating to have to deal with, uh, you know, getting a, a medication every month that's considered a, something that uh, is potentially a, a something uh, uh, people can abuse. And so yes. you can you can only get so much of it at one time. And You're not a bodybuilder. You're a cancer patient. <laughs> Kind of, that's right. Yeah. They don't know that, right? So they think yeah. uh, they see a 35-year-old asking for a, a prescription of maybe a few days ahead they're, they're, when they're supposed to, and some people raise eyebrows. Yeah, it's weird being on the other side, isn't it? What did you realize yeah. being on the other side as a doctor and then as a patient? You know, I, I would say I learned more, honestly, as a patient uh, going through my cardiac arrest. It's, it's just, I tell you, like every, I swear every four years I try to die. And, uh, my, my wife, she's so tired of it. She's like, just, just, can you please stop just for a little while? But, uh, I, it was, yeah, more interesting, especially being in this country going through 
all the difficulties that our patients go through yeah. during the cardiac arrest. Do you remember what happened? From the cardiac arrest? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just, I, so I went to bed. Uh, it was like the day after Mother's Day here. And I woke up in the ICU like two days later. Wow. And <laughs> yeah, that's, it was a shock. I, I don't, uh, so I don't remember a lot from around that time, especially the day I woke up. The first things I remember are, are talking to my nurse and, Vaguely, some of the doctors I had, I was FaceTiming with uh, my family because this was at the height of COVID, right? And height oh, of, God, COVID, of course. We're still at the height of COVID. Yeah. And so I, they couldn't be there in the hospital with me, which is very challenging. And uh, it was a, really a, a very surreal experience. When I talk about this, I always point out that, you know, my, my wife, she dealt with the trauma in the moment, you know, and, and, and I, I didn't. And, um, but what she did was, was heroic nothing short of that how grateful are you for the bgs yeah right exactly <laughs> well the thing is you know, she didn't my wife's not medically trained right she's not in medicine she's in um, marketing and maybe she took a cpr class back in college at some point but for all intents and purposes had no really no idea what to do yeah and she just she heard me having agonal breaths uh which is something a lot of people don't who are not in medicine have never heard, don't know what that means. And it's terrifying to hear, isn't it? Yeah. She, she thought it was like, I was just having some kind of respiratory infection or, or problem. Like maybe I had COVID or something, which everybody at that time thought I had COVID. And so she, when she talked to the nine one, the operator, that's when they told her to, to start chest compressions because it sounded like a cardiac arrest. And I've heard her say that the staying alive song that they use for the Bee Gees for the yeah. advert, isn't it? To show people how to do it to keep time. But that must, it's hard work. It's true. I mean, <laughs> it is hard work. Like, I, I still don't know how she did it. It's incredible. I mean, I mean 10 minutes. I, I can't remember the last time I did chest compressions. But if, if, you're, if you have an ophthalmologist doing chest compressions, something has gone terribly wrong, somewhere wrong way. But yes. But uh, I, I can't believe she's able to do it. You change every 30 seconds, don't you? And it's and again, so did, right. did you actually die, do you think, and come back? Do you know? I mean, I don't know. What's your definition of death? I mean, it's my heart stopped for 10 minutes. I wasn't getting any yeah. oxygen for 10 minutes. I don't know how I came back, but I did. I can't say I... I saw any kind of bright light. <laughs> so the movies are all wrong. <laughs> I didn't have any out of body experience. So, uh, you know, my, my soul was not trying to escape, but um, I just woke up uh, confused, <laughs> basically. And what was it like being a doctor as a patient on ICU tied to tubes with no control? Yeah, and that's that's part of the thing I, I don't remember a lot about. I just bits and pieces, you know. Mm -hmm. I really the most vivid memory I have from being in the ICU was having conversations with my nurse, right? Who was a wonderful person. Um, mm -hmm. he, he did an amazing job of asking me questions, trying to get me to remember things, yeah, and asking me about my family, about my job, thing, you know, just. And I, I remember that it, it was so important and just to have that connection, I think. And then the other thing I remember most vividly was being handed uh, right before I was discharged, being handed the life vest, which was the, um, the portable defibrillator that you wear. The, the electric bra is what I call it. Wow. <laughs> uh, because I remember getting the box and the picture on the box was this like 80 year old man. And I just remember thinking, how is this my life? Like yeah. what? 
what is going I this is not supposed to be happening to me um and it was just kind of like a little moments like that stick out uh during that whole thing I can't imagine yeah just how hard that was and again how hard not being able to have your family come and visit yeah it was hard hard for them um you know just as hard as it was for me uh probably maybe even harder not knowing you know my my poor wife Kristen you know you know just dying for information trying to get anything she can to figure out what's going on and and how bad things were and it was just it's just chaotic you know it's and one thing that she talks a lot about is you know, the uh, caregiver perspective the obviously medical professionals they have to you know treat the patient that's the priority but a lot of times when you have these these medical traumas a lot of mm. times it's harder on the people that experienced it yeah. aside from the patient the family members and it's, yeah. i think it's important for people to realize that and they don't always get the counseling where they will still have the flashbacks and the PTSD and exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, that's the type of thing we've, we've dealt with, you know, and we're continuing to work through even now, you know, a year later. And it takes time. I remember my husband's a surgeon and he said he felt impotent when I was having chemo because he couldn't help me and couldn't make me better. Yeah. And I think you kind of block off what's happened and it's often years and months down the line. You just kind of think, holy crap. <laughs> Did yeah. that happen? And how can I get out of bed today? Because we kind of don't talk about the the delayed reaction to serious illness, do we? Exactly. You know, it's it's there's the the relief that you get from surviving and coming home and seeing your family in the short term, and then it's after that, sometimes a week later, months, years, when you're really trying to process, uh, you know, your your own mortality or, you know, how, how your family experienced the, the whole event. And, uh, and that's really the, the biggest part of the recovery, honestly. Yeah, it must be. Yeah. Now, were you wrapped in kind of cotton wool and told to do nothing? Or were you told when you can get back to, I don't know, sex or rock climbing or normal life? Do they give you that kind of advice? Kind of, a little bit. You know, I, I had to really not do much of anything for a few weeks. Really, the whole time I had my this portable external defibrillator. So maybe like, you know, six weeks. Eventually, though, I got an implantable defibrillator. So I had surgery and had that put in. And mm -hmm. I started to feel more myself. But there was a long time, several months, where... First of all, I couldn't drive for six months, and so I had my mom chauffeuring me all over the place. She was, she, she came. Is your mom a good driver? Do you trust her? I uh, trust her enough. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, in fact, I, I talked about it a lot on Twitter too. Uh, so she, it yeah, was a really wonderful thing that she did. She to stay with us, and she dropped me off at work. She made me lunch. I, I honestly, I felt like a kid again. Aww. So it was a wonderful thing that she did. But uh, it took a while for me to get comfortable doing some of the normal things. Like normally I would jog a lot. I go out and run a lot. Yeah. And um, it took a long time for me to feel comfortable doing that. Even though I was, I was cleared to, it was like, okay, it's fine. You can do that. You, you have that, that fear still. Um, and that's, most of that's faded away at this point. Mm -hmm. I still feel a little bit nervous whenever I find myself in a part of town or in a park or something, and I don't see a single other person anywhere around me. Yeah. 
because it's like, okay, what, what's going to happen? Maybe I should run a little faster and get back yes. to civilization. Then <laughs> and, don't run too fast because then you never know. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it's this, um, you know, life is never going to be the same for me or my family as it no. was before this happened, but we've gotten mostly back to normalcy. That's great to hear. Yeah. And are you back now working? Or did COVID kind of put page to that? I am. Yeah, I, I, I took a month off. That's it. Only and a month? Yeah, just a month. Bloody hell. I know. I don't know. I, I probably could have taken more. But when you're in medicine and you spend so much of your life working and all of a sudden you're not working for a whole month, it just feels like an eternity. I had nine months at home. And my brain just turned to jelly. I get it completely. Oh, oh I'm sure. I can't even imagine uh, that much time. And it, it's, you know, if you need it, you need it. But I was at, at a month out. I was like, I feel fine. I've recovered from my surgery and let me get back into it. So I was very happy to get back. That's good. Yeah. Now I've been stalking you on Twitter slightly and you've been doing a lot of videos about I think how the pandemic has affected the mental health of medical staff. And I'm mm. fascinated by this because I think often doctors are perceived to be robots. We're perfect. We don't make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And it's not the reality, is it? No. Why is it so important for you to try and make the public realize how hard we've all been working? You know, it's I feel so much admiration for everybody I see on social media, friends and colleagues uh, who are working so incredibly hard during the pandemic, all everybody on the front lines in the hospitals. And that's not where I work, like, right? Like I'm an ophthalmologist, like we have an allergic reaction to hospitals. That's just kind of the way it is. <laughs> so you are true to your stereotype then. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I, you know, part of it is, and wanting to address this issue is thinking, okay, well, I'm not really uh, someone that can help during the pandemic. No one wants me in the hospital, like in the ICU. So that's part of, actually, that's part of the humor that I, I put out there is, is, you know, the ophthalmologist coming in and helping. But I, I guess I see what I do as a way to give a mental health break to the people that are putting their lives out there, putting their health on the line and yeah. working insanely long hours under an, an immense amount of stress to help save people's lives. And so if I can give them a smile at the end of a long day or allow them to share a laugh with their colleagues, like that's, I feel like I'm doing something. I mean, it's not much, but I feel like it's something and it's, it's really important. And the feedback I've gotten from these videos uh, touching on mental health and um, kind of burnout and those types of things has been really good. And so, you know, if I hear people tell me they like them, I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> I think it's knowing you're not alone. Now, not all of my listeners will know who Bill is and what the videos are about. So can you explain for the people who've never heard of you, but will soon find out who you are? Yeah. Bill is um, a character in the Glockenflecken uh, General Hospital. He is the perpetual resident. He's the trainee. Yeah. And he is constantly butting up against the attendings who let's be honest, they all have some kind of personality disorder. And um, he's a sympathetic character in these videos. And everybody asks, who's Bill? Like, I am Bill. Like, my name is William. Because we don't know your real name. I feel like, oh, my God, I know his real name. Yeah. Like, like, I'm Bill. Like, I, that's, and, and honestly, we all have a little bit of Bill in us. We do. Come on. We do. we do. We all are a little bit insecure, especially when we at the beginning of our careers, 
we're all um, eager to please, but also um, we all make mistakes. And so I wanted Bill to be that personality, that that person that we all have been at some point. And uh, I, I've been amazed how how much the character of Bill has resonated with people. I think it's great. He will have a redemption arc. He will. When is he going to get a break? Someone has to give Bill. It'll be the breast surgeon he gives Bill a break. Come on now. We're nice people. Whenever, eventually when we close the book on Bill, he will He will have his day. I can okay. promise you that. <laughs> I've been fascinated by the stereotypes. There's obviously some commonalities across the pond. So you're... Mm-hmm. Emergency physicians are the cyclists. In the UK, it tends to be anaesthetists. Are the stereotypes based on people you've worked with, or is is it just generally how they're perceived across in the states? A little bit of both. It's definitely people I've worked with. I draw a lot of of the idiosyncrasies of these specialists from experiences I have had, mm-hmm. like you know having that that fear of consulting a cardiologist because you know they're going to ask you questions you can't answer. Um, but what, what's, what's really amazed me is how, cause I didn't know when I, when I, when I put these out there, do it, we're doing like the first day of a rotation in a particular specialty. I didn't realize how common those personalities are to the rest of the world. Yeah. And so until I got that feedback, people were saying, oh, I guess it's like this everywhere. And I hear that a lot. And I think it's fascinating. It's a, it truly these different specialties in medicine attract the same types of people. It's uncanny. Like the majority of neurologists kind of are the same type of people. And it's, it, it's... They're not all like that. Some are. Well, they're not all. There's, I mean, they're all kind of nerdy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, they're, you're right. They're not. Nobody is 100%. No specialty is 100% these personalities. But the you see certain areas that really resonate yeah. across lots of areas of the world. Oh, completely. Do you ever think you worry you'll turn people off from doing neurology or orthopedics? No, I, I hope not. I hope not. Because, you know, people know by now it's, it's all, they're all caricatures, right? They like are. nobody is 100% the neurologist like that. No. I don't, I honestly don't think that person exists in nature. Maybe they do. Maybe there's somebody out there that is the perfect representation of that neurologist, but it's there. <laughs> they are all, maybe the surgeon, the surgeons, they're probably pretty close. Honestly, We are a unique breed. Yeah, we they are. are very unique. And I try really hard to make them caricatures because I, I don't want people to get mad at me. Yeah. <laughs> I want, I want it all to be in good fun. It's like TV shows, isn't it? They go to extremes because that makes a good character. Yeah, exactly. And by doing that, people recognize that, oh, this is this is comedy. It's just it's fun. It's meant to be funny. Yeah. The only thing I'm trying to do is trying to get people to want to go into ophthalmology. That's it. No, but do you really have a scribe called Jonathan? <laughs> I don't. I have a scribe named Luis. Oh, okay. Who I, who I tweet about. He's my loyal scribe. He's wonderful. And so... Uh, you seriously can't be bothered to write up your notes. This is really bad, Will. <laughs> oh, uh, yes. Until you've had a scribe and the, the ha- and understanding, knowing the joys of, of having a scribe that can help you. And it's, it's just, it's a great thing. And I understand not... I'm very fortunate in ophthalmology that you're being that paid I, far too much. I, I'm sorry. I have that uh, that I have that option. There's lots of people, specialties that do it though. You can find scribes in emergency medicine. Really? Cardiologists have okay. like a lot of it. It's not just ophthalmology. I'll tell you that. 
but okay. it's the biggest benefit. I'll say this is that it, it allows me to have 100% face to face conversations. I don't have to look at a screen at all, which is wonderful. Although electronic notes are amazing, it can take you such a long time and you're just staring at the computer screen. Yeah, yeah. I can see the benefit of a scribe. I've named him Jonathan as opposed to Luis because I didn't want to uh, bombard Luis with um, too much quote unquote fame. Stick. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, can, he can take it. He can't do that. He needs to be his own person. Although I do have a, a few colleagues uh, named John or Jonathan and mm-hmm. they do get some attention okay. from their, their friends. Is it me? <laughs> exactly now I guess comedy is a really important part of your life and I know you're kind of donating all the funds it's to the which charity is it First Descents First Descents is the one I've been involved with Uh, it's the uh, charity that supports young adults impacted by cancer which is a group of patients a demographic that's often I think overlooked by a lot of people but I think it's becoming more and more common especially as younger people are on Twitter and Instagram and talking Mm -hmm. about it it seems to be the young, young people dying every day but there's so little for them yeah, it's, um... it's a it's great to to have more recognition for it's just it's hard because you you know everybody thinks of of cancer mostly as something you get when you're older right yeah and um and then you go to waiting rooms on I've been in those waiting rooms myself when you could walk into an oncology waiting room and and you're the youngest person there by about thirty it's years horrible but look it's, the pity you kind of feel it's... yeah yeah it's it's tough and so by I'm I'm so happy to be able to support this organization that tries to create a you know a support network for for young adults when it's oftentimes hard to find that. No, it's brilliant. But I wanted to ask, comedy obviously is a way to help you cope, but is it just a sticking plaster to stop you dealing with things or is it a way of working through what you're feeling? For me, it's a it's a way of working through things. Mm-hmm. You know, not only does it just feel good to laugh, it feels good to make people laugh. It's a way to connect with, with others. Uh, there's a huge social aspect to it. But I find that using humor. I mean, it's a well-known defense mechanism, right? It's something that, you know, when you're faced with these insurmountable obstacles, using humor to try to, to overcome those obstacles, by trying to get some kind of control over the situation in which you feel out of control, Mm. I think is, is a very helpful way to address those obstacles, those either internal, you know, your, your feelings of, despair, feelings of sadness, depending on what you're going through, or external obstacles like, you know, having to deal with your insurance company. It's um, humor is a very effective way to, to, to address. So I don't think it's avoiding, I don't think you're, you're trying to just uh, kind of push aside these very real problems you're having. I I think it's a way to, to address them. And sometimes you can do it publicly. Sometimes you can just do it with you and yeah, people around you. And I guess it must be a good way to kind of break the ice with your family and friends. They're like, don't know what to say. You've got cancer again. Yeah. Or you had a heart attack. You don't want to talk about the elephant in yeah. the room. And it's actually a nice way of just saying, look, we can just talk about it. We can have a laugh. It's a, it's a wonder. I mean, humor, I, w- I wish it was used more. And the thing is, like doctors, people on social media, look at there. There are so many people that have so many funny things to say and so many funny observations. There's so much humor in medicine out there, but I think it's just now starting to become more accepted exactly. by society that doctors can be funny. Yeah, doctors can have a sense of humor, and that's something that humans uh, we're humans, right? And so I I love yeah. seeing that change. And social media is a big 
reason, I think, that that tide is turning. Have you changed as a doctor after everything that's happened to you? Because everyone asks me, surely you'll be a really good breast surgeon now you've had breast cancer. It's like, well, hold on a minute. I was pretty damn good before. But <laughs> you have a different kind of take on things. I'd love to know what. There are ways that, that I've struggled uh, since this happened, since the cardiac arrest in particular, and ways that has helped me in interacting with patients. The ways that I've struggled is, especially right after I recovered, I found it a little bit harder to empathize at first. Really? Yeah, because okay. I knew what I had just gone through. And so when I would you know, see patients and they were having these very reasonable problems uh, with their eyes that maybe just were not that, in my mind, were not that important, I know it sounds really bad to say this, but, but, no, but it's a in the short term, and this was like I'm like right when I came back for the first few months, it was it was like it was very hard to for me to to have that empathy that I would normally have. It, it wouldn't affect my really my actually what I'm saying to these patients or how I treated them, but it was just a psychological, you know, way that I was just kind of viscerally reacting. And that's, that's faded now, but definitely right off the bat, coming back, I, I just felt that. And I didn't like feeling that way, but it was really hard to avoid that. Mm. Now, uh, about a year out uh, from the cardiac arrest, yeah, I'm more aware of the financial burdens that severe medical illness can face on patients because of the issues I went through with uh, my health insurance you know, in, in this country. Because I think in the UK, amazingly, our healthcare is free. We have no idea how much a cataract operation might cost. It'd be great. Could you give us an example of just how much people are paying over there for treatment? Yeah. So cataract surgery, they'll sometimes you, if you have good enough insurance, you, you don't pay anything. Sometimes people have like a $400 copay, mm-hmm. but the, the, really the issues come with people who don't have insurance how they're able to get some of their care that they need. Mm-hmm. And really for me, it's just been more comfortable, I would say, having those financial conversations yeah. and being able to um, sympathize with people and, and uh, understand and doing what I can, you know, to whether it's trying to put off surgery until they're able to get established with insurance mm-hmm. or figuring out some kind of discounted way we could do this. Being willing to work and uh, with patients on the financial side of things, which is something that we don't get a lot of teaching and guidance on whenever we're going no. through medical school and training, especially in this country when insurance is such a volatile thing and people who have you know serious medical events occur, they can go bankrupt from it, and it's yeah. it's a horrible situation, and so. That's one area in my day-to-day job that I've been more comfortable and more proactive with addressing is the, on the insurance side of things. But fortunately, you guys don't have to to deal with that. No, I mean, we are so lucky. <laughs> the thought that people go blind because they can't afford to pay to have their surgery is just horrific. Yeah, and it's fortunately, it doesn't, that kind of thing doesn't happen often. I am fortunate in, in my field that the, some of the more common procedures are relatively affordable. Uh, but then when you add, you know, a lot of my patients are older and they have lots of other health problems going on. And so it all adds up. It all adds up. And so, you know, even when you're talking about some of the other uh, healthcare costs that patients have when they're 80, and then you talk about adding, okay, can I really do this eye surgery that I yeah. that I want to have? So it just it's all 
it's all related. So I guess you kind of treat the patient as a whole instead of the patient as a pair of balls. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, everyone's got the balls, but uh... everyone's got the balls. <laughs> oh, no, I want to end on a high note. I want to finally ask you, how important is it to you to find joy every day? I would say I don't go out of my way to find joy every day, mm -hmm. but joy is, I can find it. You know, I find it with my family, especially now. That's been one area, one thing that since this latest health fiasco I've had, uh, it, it has allowed me, it sounds cliche, but it has allowed me to really focus in on some of those moments that I wish happened more, more frequently, you know, with, uh, just yeah. with my kids, with my wife and really kind of be in those moments and find the joy there. Yeah. And that's something that's a good change that's happened since the cardiac arrest. That's, that's allowed me to really focus on, on family because it's so easy, right. To get to just drawn up and work and, Oh God, yeah. And that my, social media and all this, all this stuff. I hate my phone. I was just <laughs> right? on it. It'll, think... just, it'll just take over your life if you let it. And... It's like, what's going to get written on a gravestone? She spent all her life on a phone and she was an amazing doctor, but you never saw a family. <laughs> it's, it kind of, and it'll just, just make you realize it's kind of the memories and the people you love that's important, isn't it? Yeah. And then, I mean, with, especially with social media, it's like, okay, well, if I, if I have another cardiac arrest, it takes me out, you know, People will say they miss me for, what, a, a couple weeks, maybe. And then ne the next news cycle, the next thing comes through. So yeah, what's what's toast. really, what's fleeting in life and what's yeah. what's lasting? And that's that's something exactly. that, that I think you have to just think about some, from time to time. So I've got one final question. So when I was having chemo, um, and my cancer kind of grew during chemo, I was, I was in a really dark place. You know, you go online, you read some really scary shit, and you just wallow. And I thought, right, I need to kick myself out of this. And I found an old goldfish bowl and I started writing down things that made me smile. And we started with my blooming husband who found a, a five pound note in a pair of trousers he hadn't worn for five years. But I'm starting one for the podcast. Every time something good happens, my guests or the listeners, we're going to put it in a jar. So I want to ask you, can you share with us one thing that's made you smile in the last couple of days? Well, we just got a new dog. Oh, Yeah, we have a, a standard poodle. He's uh, about a little over a year old, and mm -hmm. lately, pretty much every morning, he's figured out when I normally get up, and so mm -hmm. he will come into the room, and he'll put his gigantic front paws on me <laughs> and kind of snuggle my face and, and tr to try to get me up. And so that's that's love right there. That's, that's what's he called? That's been a kind of a, a fun, you know, development in our relationship with our new puppy. What's he called? Uh, Milo. Well, Milo is definitely going in the jar. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Will. It's been great to talk to you. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Don't Ignore the Elephant. I thought I'd had a rough ride, but listening to everything Will has been through, it certainly made me think twice. It really brought home how important the basics are, spending time with your family and not taking yourself too seriously. And also how important it is to know how to give CPR. I had yearly updates as a doctor, but it's very easy to forget when you don't do it all the time. Maybe that's something we need to think about so we know what to do should the time come. If you want to follow Will on Twitter for his viral videos, he's Dr. Glorkenflecken. 
Please let me know if this episode has helped you because I love hearing your stories. The response to the first two episodes has been amazing. One listener wrote to say, Sex toys and lube are so often seen as kinky or naughty, but I love the ease with which you and Sam discuss them. Another said, I listened to it during chemo number 12. This is something that has been weighing so heavily on me since my diagnosis. I've been dealing with it internally and alone. I felt embarrassed and deep shame that I've not wanted to have sex, yet have also been grieving this loss from our relationship. I came home from chemo and told my husband we're going to listen to it together. I feel so relieved to have even been able to start this conversation. Another listener said, I just wanted to say a massive thank you. I actually sat with my husband and had a conversation about it all. He had no idea my mojo was so bad, but feels better that we can try and save us together. Wow, I was almost in tears when I read these. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with me. It means more than you can know. And excitingly, the podcast Jar of Joy is slowly filling up, so keep sending in your entries for this week. In the next episode, I'm going to be speaking about death and dying with a wonderful palliative care consultant, Dr. Catherine Mannix. I've been a fan of hers for as long as I can remember, and I can't wait for you to hear her words of wisdom. If you've enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe so the next episode is ready when you are. And if you do have a few seconds spare in your day, it would be great if you could leave a review and let me know what you thought. It would mean a lot. Don't Ignore the Elephant is produced by Birdline Media in association with Elizabeth Richards.